Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In the home, the whole structure being joined together grows into a whole temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Well, welcome to our service. It's great to be here with you today. If you don't know me, my name is Howard. It's my privilege to be one of the leaders at Westminster Chapel. It's lovely to be speaking to Real people in person as well as real people at home or online. We are in a series called Hope Embodied. It is in Ephesians now into chapter 3, which we've just heard brilliantly read to us by one of our life groups. And today's message is called Unveiled. 1990s supermodel Linda Evangelista once said of herself and Naomi Campbell that... They would not get out of bed for less than $10,000 per day. Right now, I get out of bed. I think it's somewhere in the region of £170 a day. I don't know how it is. Anybody else? Anybody higher, lower than that in the room? Nobody wants to volunteer here right now. Um, But the, the, the honest truth is, I don't get out of bed for money anymore. Money's not a big enough motivating reason to sustain, to get this aging body out of his incredibly comfortable bed in the morning. It just doesn't work. Money, I found, the more you have of it, the more anxious you actually feel about it. It doesn't help in that sense. And money, yes, it can make you incredibly comfortable. um, But actually, I found that the more that you have and the more stuff that you have, there's this inner sense of, of discomfort as well that comes as you feel this growing gap between yourself and those who don't have My big question to you today is, what is the driving reason for your life? What is it, the the reason that you are living for? What what gets you out of the bed in the morning? (laughs) Uh, No matter how you feel, no matter how much money you would make. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he once said that if you've got nothing worth dying for, you've got no reason to live. You need a righteous reason in your life to really live. Otherwise, you're in danger of wasting your life. You need the supreme reason to govern your life. 
This is the first point I want to make of four today to you. Supreme reason. A reason that will keep you motivated even when you feel that life's really messy. A reason that is not simply transient or temporary that only lasts this life. That one that goes on into eternity. (laughs) A reason that won't self-destruct when you die. This reason has the ultimate lasting legacy. The supreme reason. And we just heard it read to us by one of our fantastic life groups, by the way. And didn't they do a great job? I hope you're a part of a life group. Telling us these first century words that Paul wrote, sharing with us his reason for living. How did this amazing apostle of the early church, how did he overcome sufferings and trials and shipwrecks and sicknesses and a thorn in the side that would never go away and imprisonments? It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says he's a prisoner. How does he he overcome all of that? Uh, And what's his reaction to it? Does he grumble and moan and complain about all of the loss of freedoms in his life and all the difficulties that's going on? No, he's got a purpose. He's got a powerful purpose that gives him perspective. In another letter to Another church in the first century in a place called Philippi, Paul writes that he actually rejoices in his sufferings. He rejoices in the chains that he's wearing in prison. Why? Because it serves to advance the gospel. Actually, he's trained to the Praetorian Guard and they're hearing the gospel directly from him. They're hearing it, overhearing it as he's sharing with with, with people coming in to meet with him. He's under house arrest in, in Rome. And the gospel is getting out to the very center of Rome, right through those soldiers into the very emperor's palace in Rome. He's rejoicing. There is a supreme reason that governs his life that cannot be defeated, that cannot be overcome. And so this is how he begins this great chapter, chapter 3. Some people think when he says, for this reason, for this reason, I, Paul. Some people argue that here Paul's making a digression. That he gets back to his point. He says these words again in verse 14 of the same chapter, for this reason. And they say he's going on a little digressive journey here. It might be important, but it's not the central part. I tell you they're wrong. With the greatest respect to those who say that, I think they're wrong. It's because there are three for this reasons in this letter. The first comes in chapter 1 verse 15 and it begins a prayer of Paul and the last one comes in chapter 3 verse 14 and it is another prayer and you have two matching parallel prayers that both begin for this reason, for this reason. And they're part of a chiastic poetic structure. They match each other and so does the doxology of praise that begins chapter 1 and ends chapter 3. Which marks this section of what is the foundation of our lives? What are we really living for? What is it all about? The gospel. And then chapter 4 begins of how do you walk this out? How do you live out the gospel in your life? So what we have here actually is the very center, the very epicenter of Paul's thinking. It's not a digression. This is the, the heart of what it's all about. He's saying, this is my reason for living. And what is it? Well, let's back up. Let's go back up into chapter 2. Let's look at it. There. What was his reason for living? It's the church. It's the one new humanity in Christ. It's the temple of living stones coming together to be the dwelling place of God on earth. That by his spirit, he would come and be amongst the people of God. That is what Paul is living for. Is it what you're living for? 
Is this your reason for living? Let me take a moment to reason with you. Church is not just a building. If you think that, you're wrong. If you think that church is just an institution, you're wrong. If you think that church is just some kind of social club, you're wrong. If you think that church is just some kind of hobby, a side addition to your life, then you, you know, that you can just give your leftovers to, you are very wrong. Sure, it doesn't affect how you're saved. Your understanding of the church doesn't affect your salvation. But I tell you, a large part of the way that the worth, the value of your life will be judged by how, will be by how you play your part building the church. For this reason, for this reason, Paul is saying that he is a happy, willing prisoner in Rome. Note that he doesn't ever say that he is a prisoner of Rome. He says he's a prisoner for Jesus Christ. He is always a prisoner of Christ. He is captive to do Christ's will, to serve God's purpose, to fulfill his calling, which is to reach the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, with the gospel. He's happy. He's thankful. He's even in in prison, suffering and in hardship. How can he say that? Because it's an, an incredible encouragement to the people he's seeking to reach, the Gentiles. That they would see in him, Paul really believes the truth about Jesus Christ. Paul really believes the importance of the church. He's willing to suffer. He's even willing to die. He's so confident in what he's sharing. Wow, what an encouragement to the Gentiles. This man is legit. He's the real deal. Wow. Paul is, is saying to them, I am suffering that you might know Christ. That you might be joined together to be this temple where the dwelling place of God on earth would come through you to reach others with this good news. He's saying, I'm thankful that I'm in prison. That you might see that there's glory in suffering. For that is the way of Jesus Christ. Every follower of Jesus will suffer. Now, there are different time, types of, of suffering. There's the persecution that Paul is experiencing here, and millions of Christians all over the world right now are being persecuted. And in fact, Christians are the most persecuted group of people in the world today. There are millions of people like Paul testifying to the faith through their suffering. But there's also sickness. There are those thorns in the side that I, I mentioned before. All sorts of hardships that come through suffering and trials and difficulty. How do we overcome them? For this reason. So as a church leader, I, I'm not immune from suffering either. I suffer. I have Lynch syndrome. I've got a higher risk of cancer. All kinds of crazy allergic reactions that flare up sometimes out of control. And I'm often a victim as well of friendly fire from the church. Just about a year ago, um, just over a year ago, I had an email that came into my inbox. Um, and it was from somebody that's not part of the church now, so don't worry about who they are. Please don't do that in this moment. I'm sharing more just to help you see some of the suffering I go through. So this is authentic, what I'm saying. They wrote me this email and it listed everything they thought was wrong in the church. 
point one, point two, point three, point four, point five, point six. We got down to about point number eight, and then it said this, this quote, and I, I repeat it exactly to you, Howard, above all, you are my greatest disappointment. I don't know if you have moments like that when you think, I was trying to really love and care for this person, facing difficulties, challenges in their life, a lot of thwarted ambition there, rejection. I really wanted the best for them. I'd gone out on a limb for them, and then I got this treatment. I just felt like, I just want to give up. What's the point? I'm going to throw the towel in. I'm going to resign from the church. I've had enough of this. What is the point of that? And then I remember these three important words. For this reason, Howard, you have been called. For this reason is the hope of the world. It's the church. And as you start to get hold of this, it lifts you up out of those difficult circumstances to look up to God, to look out to the church, to look beyond to the world out there that is need of the gospel message and you start to say God I'm with you I will suffer for you I will endure hardship trial criticism for you for this reason I tell you you can overcome suffering when your heart beats with this reason inside it for this reason for the glory of God for the church for the church for this church you'll start to discover more of his power in you Being made perfect through your weaknesses, through the points where you suffer in life. The lessons of suffering and and trial will will teach you that Christ is enough. They'll strip you back from unhelpful attachments that you've got to different things in your life. That you will start to see that Jesus is more than enough. I don't need these worldly comforts anymore. I have Christ. He is my everything. I don't need anything else in life apart from him. You could take away anything that I've got. But if I only have Christ, I'll have everything I ever want or could ever need. And that's a powerful witness to the world. Tells the world that the comfort of Christ's presence in your life is worth holding on to despite all of the discomfort that you're going through. That's glorious. I think many of us, though, we are surprised when suffering comes. We're shocked. Things didn't turn out the way I, I expected. It, it, just, it should, shouldn't it? Like, that's what I've been conditioned to believe and the world has taught me. My life should be easy. It should be happy. It should be straightforward. I, don't, I shouldn't suffer. No one should suffer. But then the suffering comes and we're not ready for it. I think the words of the delirious song, Find Me in the River, speak so powerfully to this. We longed to see the roses, but never felt the thorns. We bought our pretty crowns, but never paid the price. We didn't count on suffering. We didn't count on pain. But if the blessing is in the valley, then in the river there will wait. We'll wait for God in the river. Do you know, I believe in these COVID-19 times, God is teaching his church more than ever to suffer well. He's raising up a generation who would be willing to pay the price to build his church. He's raising up a generation who'd be willing to pay the price for revival. 
In this season, he's giving us new eyes. There's an unveiling of the preciousness of the church, of, of the hope of the church. It's a little bit like the, the film, um, The Sixth Sense. Um, you've probably seen it. It's an old film, but let me explain and spoiler alert. Um, so in this film, you've got a boy um, and he, a young boy, is able to see dead people. So they get the help of a child psychologist played by Bruce Willis. But the big twist, the turning point in the film right at the end comes when you discover that this character, Bruce Willis, has been dead the whole way through. Now, when you go through that mind-bending kind of moment in the film, you, you could never, ever watch the film again the same way. The kind of film is sort of over for you in that sense. You can't see it the same way. Maybe you wouldn't even want to watch it anymore. It's boring. It's done. You know what's going to happen in it. It's all about the twist. It's just irrelevant now. It's kind of been ruined for you. In the same way that when a person comes to Christ, they have a new seeing. There's a twist that goes on that, that the way that they, they see the worldliness, worldly ways of living, they see the emptiness of that, the brokenness. It's boring now. It doesn't make sense anymore. I've been ruined for living for all of that now. And as that's being exposed, there's an unveiling to the glory of the church, the glory of God's dwelling place on earth, bringing his presence. It reminds me of the parables of hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. Matthew chapter 13. They describe people who would sell everything. They would give up everything. They'd see everything as unimportant and worthless compared to getting hold of what. And what is it described as? The kingdom of heaven. And where is the kingdom of heaven most manifest on earth today? I tell you, it is in the church. The dwelling place for God on earth. The kingdom coming down in, on, and through God's people out to the world. It's the church. The church, the reason for living. The church, I tell you, that's what I'm living for. Are you? Are you really? For some of us, though, right now, we might be facing a great deal of suffering you might be up against a spiritual wall. You may be in the, what John of the Cross would call the dark night of the soul. It's obscure and it's confusing. I believe that what God wants to do in that season, though, is to show you that there's blessings in the valley. He wants to work on the hidden part of you. If you like, you're an iceberg and there's a top part, but that's the, above the water. It's smaller, but the, the bigger part is below the water. And it's often the part we don't want to face, we don't want to deal with, that, that really rarely ever gets touched often in church and in discipleship. We're not getting under that often enough. And God, through suffering and trials and difficulty, he's starting to work on that part of you that most needs work. There's blessings in the valley. It's the experience of Job. Job went through extraordinary suffering. But God, in his grace through that season, gave him revelation of God, of who God is and what he's like, and revelation of himself. So that by the end of the book, Job chapter 42, verse 5, I'd encourage you to memorize this. He says, my ears had heard of you. Isn't that an experience for many of us? My ears had heard of you, God. We know something of you. But now through suffering, my eyes have seen you. Intimacy. So we're going to interrupt this service right now for a moment to be with God, to meet with him. 
We're going to sing this very song, Find Me in the River by Delirious. And it's a moment of confession, repentance, and recommitment. One of the lyrics is, we walked against the water. So many of us, I think, have found ourselves doing that in these times. We've been wrestling with God to be in control. We want to be in control. But God says, it's better that I'm in control of your life. You need to surrender. Surrender to me. So we want to commit our lives to say, God, forgive me for where church hasn't been at the center of my life. Forgive me where it's just been an add-on or a side thing or, or where I've made church about, about me and my needs and, and my wants. But help me now to recommit to you. I want to encourage you. This song talks about getting on your knees to meet with God out of sheer desperation. And sometimes the body needs to do what the soul hungers for. If you're watching this at home, even if you're in this room, get down on your knees. Get down on your knees and do business with God. Lord, we ask you to come by your spirit. Forgive us for where we've missed the beauty of your bride. Forgive us for where we've been indifferent and apathetical. Forgive us when suffering has come and we've responded not rightly. And help us to meet with you right now, we pray.
waiting if you please We didn't count on suffering We didn't count on pain But if the blessing's in the valley Then in the river we will
as we continue to wait for you, Lord, we pray that strength be renewed in each of us, Lord. We thank you that when we confess, when we repent, you forgive and cleanse and fresh life, fellowship, closeness, joy and power comes to each one of us, Lord. And throughout the rest of this message, Lord, I'm asking you to unveil and to reveal more of who you are and more of the hope of this gospel and of the truth and the privilege it is to be part of the family of God on mission for your glory. Keep setting us free from all wrong attachments and priorities throughout the rest of this service, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue now just three more points. Um, They're a lot shorter than the first one, I promise. Um, And then we'll have time for more response time as well. Just say, if you're at home and you feel like you've got a word or a scripture, do share that in the chat. And we'll put Andy on his toes so he can pick up on that and maybe work it into the service if that's appropriate or not. We're learning how do we do in person and hybrid. But my next point, my second point, is the sacred stewardship of the gospel. From verse 2, Paul is saying that he has been given by God a stewardship. That's a better word than administration. He's been given on trust to him the grace of God. This unmerited favor of God. But it's not simply to him. It's been given for the Gentiles. For those he's been called to reach. And the same is true for every follower of Jesus Christ. You are blessed with many things entrusted to you by God. Time, talents, and treasures. But above all, the most precious thing that has been given to you, put in your hands, is the gospel itself. The good news about Jesus Christ. I once heard a story. Um, It's a true story. It's about a man who was using a rock as a doorstop. And he had no idea that he was treating with disdain a $100,000 meteorite there just being his doorstop. This precious object from outer space worth a fortune. He had no idea what a privilege it was for him to have that in his home. Is it any different with us in the gospel sometimes? Do we lose sight of how precious this gospel is? Is it just a doorstop in your home, in your heart, in your life? The good news about Jesus, he came to defeat the curse of sin, the penalty of sin. We deserve death and judgment, but through Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven of our sin. So there's now no condemnation for those who believe. Zilch, zero, nada. You think you need to punish yourself for your sin? You're wrong. Take it up with Jesus on the cross. He says, it is finished. Tetelestai, it's paid in full. Hallelujah. That you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're set free as far as the east is from the west. Your sins, there should be no guilt in your life anymore. And all the shame of sinfulness, gone. It's not just the penalty though, it's the power of sin is broken. Jesus at the cross strips Satan and all the evil powers of this world naked and exposed. Their utter impotence in comparison to his awesome almightiness. The gospel is about the darkness being transformed by the flood tide of the light of the love of God flowing out through the cross and the resurrection, transforming all of reality. This is the gospel. It's 
awesome. Do you understand it? How it affects every sphere of life. The gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. It's amazing. I just find it incredible sometimes as I think about it that Jesus, God would entrust something so precious to misfits like you and me. I wouldn't do that. My precious things, you need to have some qualifications in life. You, know, you need to be good enough to, to, to steward them well, but not God. He just gives it to us. It reminds me of the first time I held a newborn baby. It was our first child, Anna, and within seconds of her being born, she was placed in my hands, these hands. And she was so vulnerable. She was so small. She was so fragile, so full of life, this bundle of joy. And I'm not ashamed to say in that moment, I I cried. I, I, I cried. God, I'm so unworthy of this gift. Should it be any different with the gospel? Maybe even more so. We've been given the answer to the most evil of viruses, the most aggressive of cancers in the gospel, in this wonderful gospel. And so it's extremely important what we do with it. It's like the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, that we don't bury it in the sand. That's what the wicked servant did. He did that because he had a wrong view of God. He willfully and religiously, resistantly refused to believe what was true about God. And instead he accepted the mask that the world, the flesh and the devil had put over God's good face. God is a hard man, he's saying. So I need to bury it in the ground. No. I tell you, if you think God's hard, you're wrong. You've misunderstood the holiness of God. He's holy, but he's not hard. He's holy, he's other in his grandeur and greatness beyond humanity and his mercy and his love and his grace and his justice. He's awesome. And because of that, and because he's with us as a father in that, therefore we can have confidence to go and share generously this gospel. You don't need to bury it. He's not going to be hard with you. He's going to be just disappointed if you don't do anything with this precious gift he's entrusted to you. He wants you to go and sow it generously, liberally, in every way that you, you can, that you've been gifted, you've been called to do, without hesitation, recklessly, Boldly, I want to encourage you today to go and sow the gospel. And that if you feel that you're lacking in motivation, you're struggling in your Christian walk following Jesus, I tell you, you've probably lost sight of the preciousness of the gospel. Take some time just to soak in it again. That was the second point. The third point is scandalous mystery. Three times Paul uses the word mystery in this passage. There is in some ways a general mystery. The mystery of Christ, the God-man come to earth. But then it says in verse 6, this is the mystery. Or the mystery is this. There's sort of a further explanation. There's a particularity to this mystery and the way that this mystery operates and, and works. And, and I think that, that, that surely it's going to say in this moment that it's the mystery of the ways of God, that glory comes through suffering. It's about the smallness and humbleness of God coming, yet demonstrating his greatness through that. That's what I think Paul is going to say. And then he says, no, the mystery is this. It's that Gentiles are fellow heirs. What? That's the mystery. 
for generations have been waiting for to, to understand and to grasp? That's surprising. But then God had chosen Israel, his holy people, to walk righteously before him. And if they failed, he created an entire sacrificial system so that they could be clean and, and moral and pure. But then how on earth could he include Gentile scum, the sinners, the sexually immoral, the abusers, you know, the money grabbers? How could he do that? Now, we Westerners, we really struggle to understand this. Because we are conditioned to think and assume we have the right to be included. I deserve to be included. We live in an age of inclusion. Everything is about inclusivity. So let me, let me reverse this for a moment using Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the vineyard. Imagine that you have got up early. The sun has risen. Not long after that, you have been working in a vineyard. Hey, God's good garden, his creation. And it's been dirty and difficult and really incredibly hard work. It's exhausting. And you've, you've labored all day getting dirty and it's been difficult and you're tired and exhausted. And then at the 11th hour, at one hour left before sun goes down and the work stops, the master, the boss, God, decides he's going to bring in some Gentiles to work for that last one hour. You don't think much of it at that moment until the day is finally over and everybody gets paid. You were working for your 170 pounds that you deserved for that day. And you got it. But so did the people who only worked one single hour. And you're outraged. You're furious. This is so unfair. How could they be brought in? I worked so much harder and longer than they did. That yet they're, they're at it. This is the outrageous grace of God. That if you were to meet this, this, this man, this, if you like, the owner of this vineyard, he would be the most generous person that you've ever met in your entire life. And he gets to decide how he uses his generosity. And he chooses to use it in this way. Our inclusion. It's extraordinary. Even though we're undeserving, even though we haven't properly earned it to be blessed in this way. This is the glorious grace of God. The 11th hour God for 11th hour people. When we start to get hold of this, we'll start to testify more about it. Oh, hallelujah, that he would include me. Who am I that you would choose me? This would pour out of every believer. It would be a shock and amazement. <laughs> I get to be included. I'm brought in. I'm so unworthy of this. This is what happens in revivals, by the way. In the 1859 revival, began in Ulster, it spread to, the, to England, and in England alone, 500,000 souls were swept rapidly into the kingdom of God as, as God was on the move in the nation. And something called Hallelujah Bands started up, a new kind of God-given evangelistic enterprise. As these groups would start these meetings, and they got called Hallelujah Bands. And they would advertise these meetings by saying, come and meet a group of people who were like this. Come and meet people who were bear fighters and prize fighters and wrestlers and drunkards and, and drug addicts, all this kind of stuff. This is what they'd say, come and meet us. See what we were, we were like that, but now see how we are. And in these meetings, you'd hear shouts out. They said they were like shotguns going off of hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Going out over these meetings that they became called the Hallelujah Bands. They would travel around seeing huge numbers of people got saved as they discovering the power of God transforming people's lives. Testifying, Hallelujah, I'm included. Praise God. This is my story. 
This is every believer's story. The fourth point is that we get shocking blessings. Shocking blessings. Paul goes back to chapter 1 where he began listing these supernatural spiritual blessings that every believer gets. We're not just given money. We are made heirs and members and we become partakers of the promise. God, give us revelation of what this means. Truly now, I ask you by the Spirit, open our eyes, enlighten them to understand. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 15, the parable of the two lost sons. And there's this younger son, you might say he's Gentile-like. If you look at how the chapter 15 begins, we've got sinners and tax collectors there. And Gentiles are very much like that, that the sinners and this younger uh, brother has said to God, I want you dead. And he's gone and taken his inheritance into the far country and he's wasted it on wild, sinful living. And then he comes to his senses and he returns back and the father runs to him. The father heart of God to embrace him. Literally the second he turns, he's, God is gone. He he loves us that much. And then he gives him what? He gives him a robe and a ring and sandals. And he has a party, a celebration, a picture of the great wedding supper of the lamb is being revealed there. And then you have this elder brother who's rather bitter and angry about it. I see him as the Jewish Pharisee-like elder brother that's in all of us. But if you read the story very clearly, you see that the robe and the ring and the sandals... And the celebration were for both brothers. That's the heart of the father. is for all inclusiveness together. And he says to him, to the other brother, everything I have is already yours. You're an heir. Firstly, we're heirs. Everything that Jesus inherits, you inherit simply by faith, your union with him. He's raised from the dead, so therefore you are also raised from the dead. You were dead in sin and trespasses. Now you're raised alive and the power of the resurrection flows in you. Jesus was seated at the right hand of God the Father, far above all principalities and authorities, reigning over all of that. And then Paul says what? You're seated in the heavenly places with him, alongside him. That means your salvation is absolutely assured it cannot be broken or undone you can't be unseated and brought down to heaven it means that your ultimate reality right now wherever you are whatever you're sat down on is that you are seated in heaven and that whatever's going on on earth below can't touch you because that's where you belong you're no longer a spiritual orphan you're a beloved child of God and every Every blessing of God is yours and the blessing of a new heaven and earth is coming where there is no sin and death. And then we're members, members of the household. That means that we have God, Jesus, as the head of the church, the ultimate one to guide us and to lead us, to give us direction, that he's giving strength to every part of the body. It means also that we're not alone, that we're part of a great church family. You are not alone. You have brothers and sisters in Christ with you in the spiritual fight. They've got your back. We are standing together against the forces of darkness of this world. And we are pushing them back as we come together. I recently read this article from the Express. And the headline is, COVID pandemic brings British churches back to life. You need to know that God is on the move 
in the church. They thought churches were dead. That's what it suggests in that headline. But they're discovering to the point where the secular press are waking up to report stories about the life that's going on in the church. God is on the move. In that article, the word community is said seven times. In the church, we are building the ultimate community. (laughs) The most joyful community. The most diverse and united community. The best community. The most gifted community in the world. It is the church on the greatest mission in the world. It's exciting. It's why I'm not ashamed of being part of a church. I'm not ashamed of this church, Westminster Chapel. This is an awesome church. The final point is... We've been made partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ. That all the promises of God are yes and amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 for us who believe. I think that this means that God wants us to pray and to plead these promises like never before because that is what pleases This is how my children often would talk to me. They would say, Daddy, you promised X, Y, and Z. When are you going to do it? You've got to do it. You said you would do it. This is the way that children relate to their parents quite often. And it's the way that people speak to God in the Bible. Jacob, Genesis chapters 31 and 32, he says, But God, you said, David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, Do as you have spoken, he says to God. Almost every revival has been based upon this, saying, God, we trust you. We will honor you enough to take your word seriously that we will not let go until you do what you've spoken in these promises. Lord, you must. And I tell you, God delights to hear prayers like that. It's emboldened praying. And so that's how we're going to finish this message. I'm in faith. I'm in expectancy like more than ever for revival may sound crazy, and there have been moments where I've been so cynical about that, but I, I believe it's coming. And so we're going to pray. We're going to pray two promises, and we'll come into a time of worship now. But I want to encourage you to let God speak to you. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, hallelujah, God. We thank you for this promise. Lord, we thank you that if we confess our sin, and would you shine a spotlight on all of it so that only we might confess it and enjoy liberation from it as you have promised. You cannot but do that. You must forgive us. You must cleanse us. You must make us a holy vessel for your glory to come in by your spirit. Lord, you must not allow anything within us to grieve your heart. Oh, awesome God, that would push away or or hold you back from coming. Lord God, we confess and we repent, Lord God, of our pride and our apathy and our difference and our anger and our lust. Lord God, all these sins are making everything about us, our selfish hearts, Lord God. We want to get it all out of us, Lord, that you'd create in us a clean and a pure heart, oh God, as you must, as you've said you would, that we would be on fire for you and for your glory, Lord God. There would be a purification of power upon your church, Lord God, as we seek to get on our knees, Lord God, and do business with you, and do business with the sin in our life, that we would be killing sin. And as we're doing that and as we're confessing, we're opening up a flood tide for revival, not just in our hearts, but all around us, Lord God. We thank you that revival begins through the confession of sin, Lord, and we're asking, God, would you come? Matthew chapter 16, Lord, you said, 
I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Lord, we claim that promise right now. Lord, we confess where we've sought to say, we will build your church. Lord, we recognize we have a part to play, but this is your church. She is your bride. Lord, we're nothing but stewards. Everything belongs to you. And we take our hands off her right now and we say, she's yours. And we give her back to you and say, God, give us that vision for your church. And give us the confidence that you'll build her. Lord, you said you will. Lord, not maybe, but you will build your church, God. And let nothing stand in our way, even the most darkest, most evil, satanic of forces of hell. Lord, could not hold us back. And we pray, I pray right now as I'm praying that they would come down. Every stronghold, every demonic lie, every sickness that is of Satan. Lord, come by your spirit and tear them down now. You said nothing can stand in the way of the church. And we're coming together right now to pray and to worship you. Let the walls of Jericho come down now as we seek to glorify your name, Lord God, and start to birth within us a love for your church, your bride. Let that be the reason that we live. Help us to re-see the preciousness of the gospel. Help us to be in awe of the shocking mystery that we are included. And Lord, help us to be amazed by the blessings. Help us to enjoy them so much that they overflows. Our joy is infectious about bringing revival. Come, Holy Spirit, now. Come, Holy Spirit, now. Come, Holy Spirit. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.